0: Here I'm just stuck here in a dream. Welcome to episode 23 of the Guns and Yoga Podcast. My name is Wendy Hummel. In today's episode, I speak with Dr. Stephanie Kahn. She's a former dispatcher and police officer turned police psychologist. In talking with Dr. Kahn, it's obvious that this works in her blood. She grew up as the daughter of a police officer and ended up marrying one. Dr. Khan explains that her career path was the result of seeing a need and filling it after the death of someone at her agency. She realized the missing piece at her agency was a culturally competent therapist to work alongside their peer support team. So what's a girl to do? She made the decision to leave her career in law enforcement, her lifelong dream and pursue her PhD. She had every intention of returning to police work, although that didn't happen exactly the way that she has planned. The work she now does with peer support teams and first responders locally and across the nation is vitally important. Dr. Khan is also the author of Increasing Resilience in Police and Emergency Personnel. She, she's considered an expert in her field and does trainings across the nation. In this episode, we discuss so many important and relevant topics, one of which is police identity. Dr. Khan discusses research from her book in which she notes that personality changes within the first 6 months of a recruit entering the academy. She gives an account of an interview with a career firefighter who said he didn't want to retire simply because, quote, he didn't want to go from a hero to a zero. Dr. Khan trains on the topic of resilience and can't stress enough how first responders must not defer a life of enjoyment for the day after they retire. She specifically mentions those who never take sick time and sacrifice relationships and all other areas of their life for the job. Dr. Kahn explains the hazards of organizational betrayal and moral injury and the compounding impact of feeling betrayed by those who are supposed to be looking out for you and how this could lead to undermining our faith and humanity. She explains the connect and protect theory in neuroscience, which is, if, you can't connect, if I can't connect to you because I have to protect myself against you, then maybe that's what I need to do and protect myself from everyone else too. We talk about peer support, what makes a good first responder clinician, and her TEAM acronym, which stands for Therapy Educators Assist in Management, when referring to the myriad of skill sets of a culturally competent clinician. If you find any value in this episode, which I'm sure you will, it's rich in content, please share it, give us a review. And if you'd like to be notified of future episodes, you can subscribe on our Podbean website or email us at wendy at bluelineyoga.com. Welcome to the show, Dr. Khan. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so glad to have you. Um, I've kind of been, I guess, stalking you or watching you for several <laughs> years now without you knowing it. <laughs> Oh, boy uh, not, not in the creepy way, I promise. But, um, I did buy your book a few years ago when it came out, increasing resilience and police and emergency personnel, highly recommend it. I I was actually looking back on it before we got started just to prep a little bit. And I, I'm the kind of person that always writes in the margins and has a bunch of notes and earmarks things. So that's how I know how much I enjoyed a book when I've got that.
1: (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Same. I could pull any of these books out behind me. And it's like the ones that have like every fifth page, the, the, the corners, Bent down. I'm like, ah,
0: yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because my husband, when he reads books, he's the complete opposite. Like he won't even open the book all the way because he doesn't want it to look worn. And I'm like, well, what's the point of reading a book if it doesn't look like it's been read? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, so the reason I asked you to be on this show is because you have, um, just so you've done so much for the first responder community and I appreciate that so much. And, And it's, it's, it's more than that. You obviously have a passion and for those who may not be familiar with you, um, you currently have your, you have a PhD in counseling psychology. I think you have a master's in criminal justice, mm-hmm. but more importantly, you, um, you've got direct experience. You were a dispatcher and a police officer yourself. I believe from, if I'm mm-hmm. recalling from your bio and your legacy law enforcement, I think your dad was a law enforcement officer and you're married to a cop. Yeah. Yeah. My husband's medically retired,
1: but yeah, he was mm-hmm. an officer for 18 years and my dad for close to 40.
0: Wow. Wow. Um, So I guess that kind of answers maybe my next question is what made you decide to, to become a police officer? Yeah, I mean, I, I it's
1: interesting because when I got into dispatching, I was in my early twenties, and I was familiar with the dispatchers at my dad's station because he worked for a small agency, and I thought that's a noble profession, that's something interesting that I can do. Um, and I was getting my undergrad in psychology, and this is this is you know important and and interesting and you no know, one day a like kind of thing. And then the more I sat there and did dispatching, I loved it, but I really wanted I kind of felt that pull to the other side of the radio and really wanted to kind of get get my hands in other things out there. And so, um, and I used to read my dad's uh, criminology and criminal justice books as, uh, as a, a nerdy kid and go on um, unofficial ride-alongs with my dad because he would do a lot of um, uh, meeting with undercover officers or other people that he was working with, or they would have the unofficial roll call in the Uh, kitchen table of the, in the house. And so I had a, had a love and an interest and respect for it from a very, very early age. And so it just made a whole lot of sense for me to, to go into that profession. And and I saw it as a lifelong profession that I would, I would do that. And, um, uh, and, and I loved it. You know, I was worked for Fort Worth police um, and I really loved what I did I mean, the shift work is always going to suck, but, Mm -hmm. um, that it is what it is.
0: Yeah. But when you're young and you're motivated and you're gung ho, those things don't seem to, uh, make as big of a difference as they do as we get older. At least that's what I found. Yeah. 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 So you were behind the headset or under the headset, I should say for a little bit, and then you became a cop for how long before you left?
1: nine years. And that was not um, my intention, uh, interestingly, because when I uh, was an officer, I was a peer support team member, and we had had uh, one of my coworkers was uh, shot and killed in the line of duty. And we had had a police psychologist at the time that was a great resource for us during our time of um, grief. And then a year later, almost to the day, uh, just a couple of weeks apart, another one of my coworkers was killed in the line of duty, and we had moved from a police psychologist to a city psychologist who didn't understand the profession, who had spent no time with us. Because I was a peer support team member, I had spent some time with her just a, you know, in the training capacity and her meeting with us, but nobody else really knew her, and she didn't really know anybody else and and didn't put forth the effort to learn. Uh, it, well, actually, I learned later. She did a ride, ride along and then said, stop the car. I don't know how you guys do this. Death let me out of the car. The ride alongs over. And so when when Dwayne, my coworker, was, was killed and she was the psychologist for the agency or for the city, um, I'm trying to read the room. And I'm like, you know, people, there's this kind of rumbling. Who's this stranger in our house talking about our fallen brother? And she read the room as well and asked me to step forward and uh, kind of take the crisis mobilization briefing from there, which I did. And I had people talking to me about, hey. Can I talk to you about this issue? Can I talk to you about that issue? And I'm like, of course, I'm a peer supporter. That's what we do. Um, But then they said, no, they wouldn't take a referral to anyone else because there wasn't really anyone out there as I looked to try to see where I could do kind of the warm handoff to someone else that understood the culture. Um, So my intention was to go to counseling school and then return to policing once I had finished counseling school because I couldn't do both at the same time. It's too grueling. And then when I got out of um, my doctorate and said, okay, I've maintained my physical fitness. I can still go back and and re-up, and um, I just was so busy there was no returning. And I I haven't given up uh, despite the civil unrest in the last year. I still think it's a noble profession, so there's still part of me that goes, well, I have a Tuesday-Thursday night reserve academy that mm, I did a couple of, you know, two or three shifts a month to kind of still do my practice and maintain the clean boundaries. So I, I, it was never my intent to leave the mm-hmm. profession. Cause I have a lot of people wonder that I leave because I had a critical event and now I'm going and saving everyone else's I was saved kind of thing. And I'm like, no, that really wasn't
0: how that worked. Well, it sounds like it's in your blood. You're so passionate about it. Uh, when you talk about it, and that's obviously what makes you so good at what you do. Um, so, so yeah, let's just go back for just a sec. So, right now you are you're living in Oregon currently. Is that where you grew up? Is that where your mm-hmm. dad worked? Okay, now, where are you from? No, I grew up in Texas. Uh, okay, in, yeah, just outside the Dallas Fort Worth metroplex, and I was an
1: officer for Fort Worth um, police. And so, and my dad was in it, you know in the town that I grew up in, about an hour or so west. And so we. We were there. My husband, that's where my husband was an officer for 10 years. My husband and I married and uh, honeymooned in Vancouver, British Columbia. And so we met the, some of the police up there when we were on our honeymoon. And actually, we did a ride along on our honeymoon, which was kind of funny because we just ran into cops at a station in downtown. And they said, Hey, you know, we're hiring and we have all these cool specialized units and we have all this fun stuff and these great benefits. And, and since you like the city, Maybe you should consider, and we're like, oh, you're crazy. Get out of here. And then we came back a couple more times, and they said, no, we're serious. We, we would give you your same rank, give you, you know, shortened academy, all this other kind of business. And so we decided to move up there. I that's oh, wow. when again, I had to yeah, that's when I had to step out of it altogether because I couldn't do the shift work and do my doctorate. And um, he re upped there as an officer and was there for eight years and then we decided after eight years of being up there that it was a better place to visit than it was to live. Um, and so we said, Let's move back stateside, but we wanna stay in the Pacific Northwest with the trees and the nature and the or the um, temperate weather. So that's where we looked at Seattle or Portland and said, which one kind of fits our lifestyle cost of living, you know, traffic, you know, other kinds of features. And we landed in Portland or Portland Metro. So, yeah.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Well, it sounds like it's beautiful there. So I don't blame you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so what's interesting about what you said, and I'm not sure how, what year this was, but I'm assuming it's a little bit of time ago is, um, Even though you did peer support, you saw a need. There was a gap there where you talked about, Mm -hmm. yes, there was someone who was there to fill a role as a therapist, Mm -hmm. as a psychologist, but they even recognized that they weren't Really, they weren't qualified to work with, you know, with with police officers, and that, you know, I, I ask anyone I can who's a therapist that comes on the podcast is to just address that for a minute because I always like to hear everyone's take on culturally competent therapists, people who think that they want to work with this population that aren't like you, that didn't come from it, that don't understand it. Um, how is how do you find people that are a good fit? And I know that's a really maybe a hard question to answer. Well, you're, the timing
1: of this is interesting because just last week, um, the fraternal—I worked with the uh, National Fraternal Order of Police, um, the wellness director, to put together a vetting criteria. Now, they had already done quite a bit of work because the wellness director is a is a, is a cop, married to a cop, and is a licensed professional counselor. So she, like myself, can ride. You know. Uh, in both lanes, and um, so they were already coming up with the criteria for vetting, like treatment centers or wellness products, whether it be you know uh, wellness apps or other kinds of programs, and we're kind of putting the stuff together for vetting clinicians. So when I met with her, Sherry Martin, I said, "Hey, look, this is something that we're already doing at the state level. There's no reason for you to reinvent the wheel." And she said, "Well, I love that." So we merged, and that that product and cops. Um, actually just uh, co-branded it, decided they were gonna assist in the publication of it. So that criteria was published last week. And so it is all these kinds of things. And you know, it's kind of a quadrant because I've taught this course a few times where there's the, do you have the cultural competency? Do you understand the culture of the first responder profession? Which one, all of them, some of them, Uh, what's the degree of competency that you have, training you've had, ride-alongs you've had, experience, that kind of business. But then there's the clinical competency. Can you work with someone that has trauma? Do you know how to work with someone that has a sleep disorder and you know shift work disorder and some of the other kinds of things and some of the ways that the relationships are affected? Um, you know, do you have office practices that um, are conducive to the first responder profession? Because if you have a very strict cancellation policy, you work nine to five every other Monday, Wednesday, Friday, um, it's going to be really prohibitive. For first responders that might need evening or after, you know or late or might be called into work and don't want to be deemed the late cancel fee when it's outside of their control, um, you know, do you have your waiting room where you're sitting potentially next to the person you might have arrested yesterday or you might encounter in the course of your job the day before? So, have you given consideration to? how a person comes into the office and how they walk out of the office. So it's really kind of interesting nuanced things relating to privacy. How are you with language, with weapons and sessions, you know, those kinds of things. And then, um, you know, and then is there, are there other kind of personality? And this is the one we, it's really hard to, to name it, but I've had um, clients come to me, uh, first responder clients say, you know, I tell this person all this horrible stuff and this kid died and I felt this way and this and that and the other, and they are just like, that sounds terrible. And they're like, and what? And it sounds ter- mm-hmm. like, is this normal? That sounds terrible, and I should do something about it. What, what do you mean? So they're looking for someone that, and not, not everyone's going to want the exact same thing, but someone that's going to be able to say, this is normal This is common. This is what I would expect to see given that. Here's the way forward because they are, you know, they want it. They're problem solvers and they want someone else to kind of have that kind of same mindset rather than what has historically been more um, uh, what's called supportive counseling. And it's not to mean that I'm not supportive of people, but I don't just throw out an empathy statement and stare at them and wait for them to say the next thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of funny because what you're, I'm not a trained therapist, but it sounds a lot like we do during peer support <laughs> actually. Yeah. So I appreciate you bringing up, um, the cops publication that you worked on. Um, I have been working with Sherry. I've been fortunate enough to work with her because at the agency I'm at, we, um, not only are we a grant recipient for the, one of the LEMWA grants, but we also participate in the Crytac program. I don't know if you're familiar with that. She, she mentioned it to me. Yeah. And it's been so great because, um, for anybody listening, it's a really great program. I hope it continues, but obviously the area that we asked for assistance in was, was wellness and peer support. There's other areas you can, you know, you can also use resources for, but, so I was assigned Sherry and then the Nashville police department wellness unit. And I've gotten to talk to these guys, the three of them practically every two weeks for the past year. And so Sherry mentioned, cause one of the things I told her that I needed assistance with was vetting culturally competent. It, therapists. And so she had been kind of telling me a little bit about this as you guys were working on this. Mm-hmm. And so I I got to see the document and it is very, very thorough and well put together. And 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 I'm really glad you mentioned it because I almost forgot to to talk about that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was such an interesting thing because when I saw the document last week and I knew it was going to be coming out um it almost Well, it did bring tears to my eyes because I'm like, this is kind of what I've been, this is the song I've been singing, the dance I've been doing for a long time, and in my mind, this is the beginning of it. It's this is here's how to vet, Um, and the next thing is now we need to populate the list of clinicians that meet this. So it isn't a who do you know? Do you have to talk to somebody? You know, word of mouth, Google search, whatever. Now we need to make it that list a robust list of who these people are that have met this criteria. And then the third line is, and Sherry and I had this conversation very early on, I think the first time I met with her to talk about it, I said the next thing would be, and then who isn't up to snuff in these respects, but has an interest to, we need to, to put forth some kind of training, a rigorous training standard, so that people can come up to snuff in that respect, um, because some want to, and they just don't know what to do. Or somebody says, oh, hey, take this, you know, there's, sadly, there's people that are in this for the wrong reason, and they'll jump in and say, hey, buy this, and you have, you've you've got these stars and checked marks and all this kind of stuff, and it's not necessarily good for you.
0: Yeah, and and I'm sure for you it has it's really got to be, you know, kind of emotional in a way because like you said you've been this has been what you've been doing. This is your your life's work. I mean, what mm-hmm. how long ago was it about 20 years ago or so. I don't know how old you are. You look pretty young, but that you first started this this process of you knew that you were going to have to to do more.
1: Um it was probably around 2008. Mhm. Okay. So it's been about
0: yeah, 13 years. Yeah. Yeah. Things have come drastically. I mean, they have changed quite a bit since then. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that we've been trying to do, uh, here locally is like some of the things that you have in your list is just going out and doing field visits with people and trying to, to see if they, they meet the criteria, but you're right. Um, those who don't have the training, um, where do they get it? That's mm-hmm. that's the next question. It's something we've asked here locally, but um, I also talked to Amy Morgan not that long ago. Her podcast hasn't been released yet, and she's got some online training that for for police therapists. So, and I don't know if you're familiar with it. So, um, I guess there's people that are that are working on stuff like that.
1: Yep, yep. And Jamie Brower, Dr. Jamie Brower, also has hers for the the um, public. Safety, emergency responders uh, certification. Jamie is board certified. She's as a police psychologist, and so the, the the standards for that certification are APA endorsed and are pretty rigorous. Like there's there's in-person components and other things that I think, um, and I helped um, uh, Jamie gave her some feedback on that. And this was kind of the combination of people that were either. You know, there's a firefighter that became a clinician that chimed in on that. Actually, there's two of them. So it was a combination. A lot of people that have actually done the profession and are board certified in it. So there's just a really very rigorous um, standard, but also a very rigorous um, training program that goes that goes with it. So, in fact, I talked to Jamie a couple months ago because she was asking me to contribute more to it in terms of what the content was, and I just don't have the bandwidth at this time yeah. to, to do that. So,
0: yeah, you're a busy lady it sounds like. So, if somebody <laughs> is listening who's a therapist cuz it's not just for people who have a PhD. If you have a master if you're a master's level clinician, mm-hmm. you can go attend this training. Is it something that's offered online? How could somebody find that if they were interested?
1: Yeah, well Jamie's training is again, she's got a really long name for it and it's I think it's the National Public Safety NPS Public safety, emergency responder, certifications. I, yeah, I'd have to look it up, but it's, That's, it's okay. NPSER, yeah, and then you'd find the rest. Um, but just even looking at Dr. Jamie Brower, um, then you would see that. She's got that information there. And not only that, even if you're just like, oh, I don't know that I'm going to go the route of the full certification, but I'd like some training. Right, I I just want to kind of build up my competency. I don't need anybody to to certify me. Um, She has, and I told her, I "I can't even believe how many resources you have on there. Here's a podcast. Here's a book. Here's a video. Here's an article, all relating to mental health in the first responder field. Tons, like page after page after page of resources. She must have spent hundreds of hours putting or having someone put that content there. I refer to it all the time, even though I can't. Yeah tell you the website name because it's (laughs) defaulted in all my stuff. It's already, I just copy and paste. So we we get lazy. We don't have to remember those things
0: anymore. Yeah. That's Yeah. We have other things that we need to remember. So, (laughs) (laughs) okay. That's good to know because one of the things I was actually going to bring up next was the things that you have available on your website. I was checking that out before we started and you have quite a few resources on there that, um, that are really beneficial. And I don't know if you mind speaking to that for some people who are listening. Um, yeah, no. you mean the, uh, like the articles that I've written, the articles, and then you've got, I'm going to pull it up right now. Cause my computer just went to sleep. Um, Oh, let's see. Re- it's under the resilience information tab on your yep. site. Um, so you have something about police suicide, the first one, that annual check-in PDF document. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's some really good things on there for people to check out. And, um, I just wanted to make sure we mentioned that so people knew to go check it out.
1: Yeah, and what it was or what some of those are is some of them are documents that I created when I was a peer support team member, the annual Mm -hmm. check-in, and that I have revised over the years because I noticed when I was a cop that, Uh, And a peer support team member that people are like, Hey, um, we're already kind of noticing that people are so work focused that they don't know what they'd be interested in outside of work. So I did training for the peer support team members on how, on how to have fun, how on recreation. And I remember thinking, this is a very bizarre training request and so I'm just telling them about things in the community that they might get involved in the things that they might be interested in doing and they didn't know these things existed and I started thinking how do you not know these exist and I thought oh because you're not answering calls for service there there's no dead bodies found there there's nobody shooting somebody right so you only really ever know you know in some cases in your own community where you've gone because you've been dispatched there which makes you really weird tour guides but so that it was just the fact that they didn't think to have fun or, or you just even kind of losing all those interests outside of work, um, I created that annual check-in uh, for recruits initially so that they could ideally capture at the time that they start the job what they're interested in, what their values are, who their people are, how they spend their time, so that every year on the anniversary of the day they were sworn in or whatever date of significance is for them. They can look at it again, because otherwise you find yourself a ten year officer, a fifteen year officer, and you say, "Well, you know, what are your hobbies because they're off on stress leave or they're off on injury or that kind of mm-hmm. stuff, And they're like, uh, well, let's see, I used to do this. Okay, when was the last time you did that? Well, let's see, it was when my kid was uh, right before my kid was born, and they're fifteen, and you're like, "Wait what? So um so but then I've actually started as I'm doing resilience training, I'm sharing that revised, annual check-in with um, seasoned first responders, and we're having conversations about how they've changed and their interests have changed, and that part of being resilient, a huge part of being resilient is being aware of how you're not resilient or what you're doing that's helping you or what you're doing that's not helping you or what you're not doing that would help you, Um, and you you can't take any action if you're not really aware of those things.
0: Yeah, no, it it all starts with self-awareness, which a lot of times um, some of us are not, quite honestly. We don't take the time to think about these things. So I really like the the idea of being able to look at this document and spend time intentionally looking at these things that we don't normally think about. Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. And share it with the other people that are in our lives because they see our blind spots. And there's been some interesting conversations that have come out of that where a person has said, well, they didn't really think they changed that much, but when they asked their person... And their person told told them, they said, I couldn't even believe what came out of their mouth. And I'm like, why didn't you tell me before? And they're like, well, you never asked me before. Or I thought you knew. Or... I didn't know how to bring it up or, you know, you were already having a hard time, so I didn't want to appear to be complaining. You know, there's any number of reasons why they're not getting that feedback. So, I mean, can you imagine if you treated it like officer safety and nobody gave you feedback on a call that what you were doing was, was putting heading you in the wrong direction and was going to get you hurt or get someone else hurt? Can you imagine if people were aware of it and they didn't feel okay saying
0: it? Yeah, you. that's such a good point because one of the things that I think goes suffers quite honestly, a lot is relationships and family. Mm-hmm. And we don't really ever learn the right way to communicate. You know, you just have to kind of figure it out. There's no classes that we've gone to. And then you add on this kind of profession. It's something that we're really trying to bring awareness to at our agency. We haven't really done anything about it yet. Um, but I think it's so important because you're right. We take it, we take, it, you know, we take it for granted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So that's one document. And the other documents are just like kind of one pagers here or there relating to EMDR or trauma or other things. I think I have a personal resilience plan on there. And part of the things that are on there is because when I go around and do resilience training, I give these people the documents as just like in paper for them to work through them in the class, you know, because there's, Awareness precedes change. And then I tell them, just go to my website if you want to replace it or get it and send it to somebody else that you think might benefit from this exercise or you've lost it or whatever. Right, So it's also there for people that want to um, look at how they're doing and what they need to be doing more of, less of.
0: You know, it's a great resource, so I, yeah, I wanted to make sure we talked about that for people to, to check out. And you, you also mentioned that you do a quite a bit of work still now in your role with peer support. So, what does that mm-hmm. look like for you? Do you um, are you partnering with local agencies, or how, how does that work? <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: In fact, today is uh, today is the day I'm 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 technically off for work from home, and my husband saw me in my work shirt, and he goes, "What." And I said, "Oh, do you think I was getting dressed to go to work?" And he's like, "What did Salem PD do?" And so, sorry, Salem, if you're listening, but he, he, <laughs> they've they've had a lot of stuff going on. So I've been supporting mm-hmm. the peer support a lot lately. So, yeah, there's I I stopped counting. Um, uh, but there's about ten to fifteen agencies that I'm connected to um, in one capacity or another, and many of them, m- the majority of them, are in a peer support. Um, so I am guiding peer support, and some of it has to do with sometimes, depending on the contract, I just show up and help with the debriefings. I show up for the, you know, those kinds of things, the critical incident stress debriefings, or participate in the trainings, or or conduct the trainings, and then others, it's much more. Involved where I have a really, um, uh, um, comprehensive contract with the agency with the peer support team so uh, like last week one of the peer support team members texted me and said I have an issue can you please call me and so I call them between sessions and then I hear you know somebody's really um, in a bad way and they're in ICU and they need an emergency support session for the agency and they wanted some guidance on how to help the mental health of the people during this crisis so that's so the you know I extend my next day an extra hour and a half to make sure that I have that time for people to to have that kind of support. And then so so there it's those kinds of things. it's it's twenty four seven and three sixty five. Consultation to peer support team members if they have something that they're just like, hey, I'm trying to support this person. I'm concerned about them. I'm con- I'm trying to support this person. I'm not concerned about them, but I'm getting stuck as to where to go, um, or I'm I'm worried about this boundary, and I just want to make sure I have another opinion on what what's happening. So that's the kind of business that I do with peer support team members, and then I do quarterly trainings with them to make sure. You know, that each quarter they get training, whether it be on addictions or improving conversations or burnout or, you know, other factors. I let them tell me what they are wanting or what they're seeing so that I can cater it to either what the agency needs are. You know, if you just have an influx of, okay, a whole bunch of people just started having kids or a bunch of retirements occur. Like, what what are you dealing with? What can I help you with there? Or if everything's kind of good in the hood what do you, Are you so afraid if it ever came up that we really need to make sure we cover it and you feel good about it?
0: Well, I can't tell you how much, I mean, how lucky the people are in your community to have you because I i am on the other end of that where I you know, manage the peer support team. And um, there are so many times where I'm like, oh crap, I don't know what to do. I need to call a professional. <laughs> um, I need some advice and, and I have a little bit of a support system, but, um, and we have an EAP and I know EAPs get a bad rap, but the one we've got here, we've got a few really, really good culturally competent folks. Yes the issue is the limitation of time. And you just, that, that, that's like really the million dollar question is, -hmm. are you willing to be available? Like you said, seven days a week all the time, because Mm -hmm. that's typically when things happen. When I have questions, it's not, you know, sometimes it's between eight and five. Um, but oftentimes it's not, and it's, it's, you know, you're in that crunch time and you need support because you're the one they're looking to. Um, it's really nice to know you've got somebody with so much experience that, that, you know, will answer your call. And and I do have somebody like that. It's not that we don't, but, but it's really not what they're supposed to do. A lot of times they're just doing us a favor, but it's very, it's so hard to find somebody willing to really do that. And I think maybe because maybe it's not always the case, maybe because you're a cop and you, it's kind of, you grown up like that, you understand that that's <laughs> what it takes, but not everybody does. So I, I think it's really important um, to mention that that's, that isn't easy to find.
1: Well, and that comes back to the vetting criteria in terms of finding a clinician because and, – and I have to credit my colleague Drew uh, for this acronym um, – uh, the TEAM acronym. And so when you look at a clini- clinician, you have T is for therapist or treaters, like people that are therapizing. So they're probably going to have more limited hours, although, or limited availability outside of session just because they're therapizing. Um, then you have educators, people that are really good at working a room, training, getting people on board with things, keeping adult learners engaged and fixtures engaged and people that are going to poo poo on yoga engaged and all this kind of stuff. Then you have people that can assist with things like crisis negotiations hostage negotiations, SWAT team you know, uh, operations that are actually okay if somebody has to be, you know, use, use of force has to occur, deadly force mm-hmm. has to occur. And then you have M, which is really the management. So the management of a wellness program, the management of a peer support team, and all the pieces that come with that. So the criteria of what makes a, a good um, clinician is going to have different demands on them depending on which thing, because you can't, it's not a blanket. You're good to go because I, somebody can be great as a therapizer and and be terrible standing in front of a room of people. They can be great as an instructor or a therapist and be terrible on the scene when there's a use of force or, you know, bad jokes or, you know, stinky hot, you know, trailers with, you know, you know, room temperature McDonald's bags sitting in it. Right. So, it's it's a very different skill set from one to the other, um, and so as a, if you sign off and say I am good to be attached to a peer support team, you have got to have that twenty four seven availability.
0: That's a really yeah. good point. I like that acronym a lot. Can you tell me what the A stands for? I know you explained it, but I can't. I didn't it's, catch what it's, it
1: um, it's assistance. So you're Assist, assisting okay. with. Yeah, you're assisting with like crisis negotiations, hostage negotiations, crisis intervention training, that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, and so that's the thing, and it's not for everybody, and it's not that I don't have boundaries or self-respect or those kinds of things, but if I am not going to be available then I have someone who is my point person. And so that's the other thing as a clinician attached to these agencies is I don't try to be the end all be all because maybe someone doesn't want to talk to a woman. Maybe someone doesn't want to talk to me. I'm too forthright or they don't like my hours or I'm not available and when they want, you know, they want to see me on Mondays and I don't see people on Mondays. So I make sure they have introduced, like one of the the contracts I have, I was like, you've got three other clinicians that are considered your clinicians. If I'm not available, or you don't like me, and, you know, talk to Drew, talk to Tracy, you know, you've got other options, right? And I don't want them to be strangers to these other clinicians, even though the, the contract is primarily with me, because it takes many people. And then maybe I'm seeing the person's Spouse, you know, you got a couple that both work for the same agency. I'm seeing one. Drew can see the other or Tracy can mm-hmm. see the other. Or that one works with couples and I'm going to work with individuals. This one works with children and I don't, right? It really kind of takes uh, us working together to support rather than being territorial because um, that's not going to work.
0: Yeah, and unfortunately we see that, don't we, sometimes when we? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, yeah. No, that's the, no, that's great because in, in, you know, let's say you want to go on vacation too, and you're not around and somebody needs to talk to somebody, you know, they have yeah. to be able to do that too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, uh, I'm not answering my cell
1: phone while I'm on. Well, that's not entirely true. Um, I'm ordinarily not answering my cell phone while I'm on vacation. If I, if I've got someone covering me,
0: so mm-hmm. yeah, it's hard to, to let that go. If you know, somebody is in crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So switching gears just a little bit from peer support, um, what, what do you, you've done quite a bit of research and I'm personally interested in this topic, but I've also gotten a lot of questions about it. Um, organizational institutional stress. You talk about it in your book and I think, and I don't ha- I'm not reading this directly from your book, but you even quote some research or cite some research that it can be even more damaging than, than stress than critical stress. Can you talk about that a little bit, especially given just the current, you know, just the current temperature with law enforcement and, and all of that?
1: Yeah. 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 When I do resilience courses and I ask people, okay, how many of you have had a course on resilience or stress management, you know, stress management, about a third of the room resilience, about, you know, 10 to 25% of the room will raise their hand. And i say, how many of you have had a course on organizational betrayal? Um, Right? Or organizational hassles. Like, even in the best departments, right? Um, there's going to be a feeling of being betrayed or the hassles of, you know, administrative processes and that kind of stuff. And being, a, my dad was a chief for half his career. So I understand they sometimes get villainized because the chief's done the cops, the line officer's job, but the line officer's never done the chief's job. So they, mm-hmm. it, it, there's not always a clear understanding of decision making and there's not a lot of trans, there's not always enough transparency there. Can't always be that a level of transparency there. Um, so that is a, that, in my experience and in the research shows, that is a harder pill to swallow because when it comes because it's more personal. You expect the bad guy and the bad girl to, on some level, to, you know, try to frustrate the arrest process or the investigation process or do other things that lead you to come in contact with them in the first place, you certainly don't expect that to happen within. And, you know, if a friend of mine was a, was a staff sergeant for the RCMP and a psychologist, and he said, you've got a plate in the front of your vest for the bad guy and a plate in the back of your vest for, for you know, for the agency or the administration. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so and that just got a lot of head nods because a lot of people had felt that. And they're just like, hey, I can get past this this other thing because I'm I'm trained for that. I actually know what to do about that. You know, the traumatic event on the call or these other kinds of situations I have training for it. I've expected it. I ha- I'm task oriented. But when I feel like this other stuff happens, I, I, they're just stumped. They don't feel like they have the resources. They don't know. They don't expect it. Um, it feels more personal. Um, it's, it's just, it's, and it's funny because I said this quite emphatically with an agency that I was working with because they were just saying, oh, well, the so-and-so's response to the way that we handled that, that they can get over it. Like, we're just glad they're okay. And I said, no, actually the fact that the administrator forced something on them Mm -hmm. that they said they didn't want as a form of support was more damaging than the trauma itself. Not maybe it was, it could have been, it was, and it consistently is harder on them. And I said, so we have to stop doing that. You can't just kind of brush it under the rug and say, ah, they were trying. Well, okay, they get a pass, but then after that they need to know you can't just do certain things that contradict a person's recovery.
0: Well, and I think it's just changing a culture and educating them because I think sometimes, you know, like the example you just gave, people don't really understand what they're, you know, how that's impacting the officer or whoever it was that, that, you know, you're referring to, but, uh, and and sometimes it isn't that maybe there's other things going on.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But I, I mean, I, I tell you, I have the best job in the world and I have the best setup um, other than perhaps too many hours, but, um, is (laughs) honestly what I hear as a therapist informs what I can do with peer support, the feedback I can give I mean, in, in the most confidential way, clearly, but the feedback I can give peer support on what works and what doesn't work when I write up wellness program, what works and what doesn't work because what I hear behind closed doors tells me all that. And then when I go out and instruct, and I hear what people like across other agencies who aren't necessarily going to therapy, but that are attending courses. I hear another level of information, another layer of what's working and not working in agencies, which informs sometimes what I do in the therapy session or what I write up in a wellness program. And I'm just like, boy, you know, and, and I've had some people say, hey, do you think you'll ever give up therapy? And I say no, because all, everything else would suffer. Like well, it actually learn... tells me what I need to
0: train on a lot. Right. Of I was just going to say you're, you're getting, you're learning from your clients or your patients, I assume too. Yeah. I mean, you're getting, yeah. you're learning and you're, you're understanding what's relevant. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, everything would suffer if I ever gave that up and I wouldn't get, I mean, that wouldn't be the only reason clearly that I would give it up. I, you know, I wouldn't give it up because that's where, you know, a lot of meaningful work occurs, a lot of connections and, Quite honestly, a lot of um, repair or building of trust, rather, because Mm -hmm. they don't typically trust like encounters with mentals, as my friend calls it, because they associate it with
0: (laughs) or the head (laughs) shrinkers, right,
1: right, all that, because they associate it with a fitness for duty evaluation or a pre-employment or these other kinds of things that we don't that we those of us that are treaters, like if you're if you're really keeping on one side of the fence, like we're supposed to, uh, or like as, as is oftentimes recommended, you don't have anything to do with that other stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So you, you mentioned earlier when you were talking about institutional stress, organizational stress, um, something came to mind and the word moral injury. Can you talk a little bit about how that might tie into how someone feels when they feel betrayed by an institution or an organization?
1: Yeah. Well, it, I mean, the moral injury, it just basically creates this sense of um, this kind of pessimistic view of mankind that mm-hmm. I don't live in a safe world. I don't live in a world where good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Sometimes, you know, the people that are supposed to be good do bad things and they hurt and, and they hurt good people. Right. And 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 it really kind of gets down to some of these foundational um, issues of humanity. How can one human being treat another human being like that? And again, you know, it's, it's incomprehensible for someone to abuse a child. Um, it's also incomprehensible that someone that is supposed to be a support person hurts them. And, um, you know, so it is uh, unjust at, at the most profound level
0: yeah. What you said earlier made me think of that because it's like, like you said, you know, we expect some, for, to a certain extent, some of this treatment by, you know, the nature of what we do, but we don't really ever expect it from the people that we work alongside with or for within the agency. And I think that takes, takes a lot, um, of getting used to for a lot of people. Cause it's not something they really expect.
1: Yeah. And it undermines, um, their faith in humanity, which is going to have collateral damage or has the potential mm-hmm. to have collateral damage. Because if you could betray me and you're supposed to be looking out for me and you're supposed to be one of, you know, like on my side, anybody could.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like it just opens it up to I'm, I'm I'm, vulnerable. I can't be vulnerable. And, you know, in, in the neuroscience literature, they say you're either connect or protect. And if I can't connect to you because I, you know, because I have to protect myself against you. Maybe I need to protect myself against everybody
0: else. Oh yeah. And that can be really damaging. I can see what you're saying. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, one other thing I want to make sure I talk to you about is, um, police identity. Mm -hmm. You, you have written several articles on this and I have read them. And the reason why for me personally, I like to talk about this because this is something that, I experienced a problem with, and I had no idea that this was going to be an issue for me when I retired. Um, it just kind of really came out of left field. I felt like I was the blueprint for resilience mom, you know, wife, friend, activities, yoga, all these things and I was no longer detective hummel and it was very strange and quite honestly it took me about a year to figure it all out and I had a lot of embarrassment and shame about that. Hmm. Um and now I make it make it an, a point to talk to people about it because um a lot of times when people are getting ready to retire they don't understand that this is something that could happen. It doesn't happen for everyone. Um but you know when you've done something for so many years, um, it, we do, we over identify, I think oftentimes with what we do at work. So because it is something personal for me, but it's also something like in the role that I'm in, um, I talk about in some trainings that I do, cause I do notice that it's really something, uh, a lot of other people struggle with too. So if you could give us a much more professional and explanation about that, that would be great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and
1: certainly um, people that are lifers, like, you know, they've been in the profession for a long period of time, that makes a lot of sense, you know, okay, or I say it makes a lot of sense, you know, we think about those. Okay, you've been doing a long time, this is what you do, this is what you who you've been, this is where you've gone to work every day, and the uniform you've put on, and how you've kind of carried yourself um, – but it actually happens, and the research shows, it happens very early in the process. It, sometimes the identity of I'm going to be a cop occurs during the background process when you start doing the ride-alongs or you start talking with other people about what you're going to be doing and you start kind of changing who you uh, hang out with and what you do. And there's a certain degree of that They you have to. You can't hang around with people that you'd be arresting and, you know, unsavory characters. But then there also becomes this kind of, you know, and they talk about it in the, in the identity literature, you're trying to, you're trying on this kind of new hat as to the who I'm going to be now. So very early on, and then even in the academy process, and um, I think his first name is James Conti talks about it when he, in his research, he said in the first six months, there's a personality change right out of the gate as they're already starting to prepare for this, Now it's instead of this potential self um, that's going to be starting this job. Now it's a provisional self. And then they start getting feedback from supervisors and trainers and this kind of stuff of of how they're supposed to act and how they're not supposed to act. And it's very interesting because in my academy, we had a sign – um, over the door that says, you know, you you become a Fort Worth officer be, because you earn it, right? So there's this kind of pride. And, again, I don't ever mean to diminish from the pride you should have in the profession. But as long as there's this constant kind of systematic prizing of your work profession or your work role, there's a systematic um, kind of pushing down of your personal roles and all the other things, your parenting role, oh, you're off because you've got, you know, you know, family stuff. Oh, okay, you're off because you want to go. To... Oh, that's nice. And I did some, I actually did some research with career uh, first responders and said, what's, what, you know, you're eligible for retirement. What keeps you from retiring? And certainly I had the people that said, oh, well, you know, I split my pension five times. I still need to work and, or I've got kids in college. I want to do that. Or others said, I still feel a sense of purpose and accomplishment in my job. But a lot of them said, and I remember one fire chief even said, I don't want to go from a hero to a zero. I like, oh, whoa. Hmm. Yeah. And those were his words. These were, this was a recorded interview that he knew was being recorded, and he said, my first wife didn't didn't tolerate my marriage to the job. So I got rid of her. This one referring to his current wife tolerates it. So I keep her. And I was like, wow, you should write Hallmark cards. That's beautiful. <laughs> <Right>? oh, <laughs> God. I was like, you know, but this guy was a, was a father, a husband, a church. Mm-hmm. Like, So, but in his mind, if, if he wasn't a hero, he was a zero. And in that same uh, research that I was doing, I was interviewing a career cop who out of one side of his mouth in one moment was complaining about the young cops that don't have this commitment to the job because they'll take off if they have a hangnail or they want to go take have vacation and blah, blah, blah. Minutes later, and again, recorded interviews, minutes later, he's out of the other side of his mouth is saying, I wish that I had taken off more time. I wish that I had done things differently. I wish that I had done it. And I was like, do you not see like – I, and I was, I was like, you're playing the researcher role. You're not playing the clinician here. You're not playing the therapist here. Because if he, he had said that to me in a therapy session, I would have called him on that contradiction and noticed the mm-hmm. contradiction within him that he wanted to have a life of balance and an identity and things outside of his work. But there was still some kind of old school mentality and, a, and even another one bragging about how many days off that he had banked and sick time he had banked and this badge of honor of just – being so overcommitted to the job. That was pretty
0: tragic. Yeah. You know, you hear about people who, um, have all this sick time and, you know, as a female and having kids, you know, I didn't get to build up as much sick time before I retired, you know, I mean, I still had quite a bit, but, but it's almost like this badge of honor that people have all this time, uh, when they retire in vacation time too. It's like, why didn't you take it? I guess that's something I've never really understood that people just, they kind of almost wear it as a badge of honor. Like I've got all this, this vacation and I'm in quote unquote user lose. And so because they don't take the time because they're at work. Right. Yeah. They're deferring living, Mm
1: -hmm. right. They're deferring a life of enjoyment. They're deferring that. And that is not a, that is not a life well lived. If you're, Mm -hmm. you can be happy when you retire. Yeah. Right. If it's contingent on that versus, Doing it along the way because it's going to affect your relationships, it's going to affect mm-hmm. your health, it's going to affect your longevity, those kinds of things. I remember one officer that I was talking to, and again, this was a, an interview, where he said that he went to the funeral of one of his coworkers and his, the son of, the, of his coworker that died said, you knew my dad better than I did.
0: And oh, he boy. Said
1: that was that moment where he was like, I am not that is not going to be my child walking up to my coworker saying that my coworkers knew knew me better than my own children, because that was that moment where I, I said things have to be different for me. And so then he started trying to make sure he was having a life and identity um, outside of his work role, his work mm-hmm. identity.
0: Yeah. And that's why it's so important. And I I know you, this is probably what drives you when you do your training is to instill that in the younger generation so that they will learn from, you know, the older generation and maybe not uh, repeat those mistakes. Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. And I share the story that the four months before my dad died, um, the last time that I actually saw him in person, I went back to Texas to see him and he and I had, and I was my father's daughter. I mean, I was a daddy's girl my whole life. Well, maybe not my teenage years, but that's pretty normal for a top <laughs> That daughter. is
0: very normal. <laughs> <laughs> but,
1: but aside of that, it was still his daughter. Um, but aside of that, I was always uh, a daddy's girl and we had, we had a moment where it was just he and I, and this was, a bit, my father was a very stoic man. I watched him at his mom's funeral. He didn't cry. I remember being confused that he didn't cry at his mom's funeral because I thought, like, this is really strange. Does he not care? Um, and But he cried when he and I were talking when he spoke of his regrets of the choices that he made as a father. Mm. And he said um, with tears in his eyes that he was doing the best that he could, that when taking – he would take me on, you know, to go do surveillance or would take me on things where he was meeting with an undercover or take me to work with him and that kind of stuff when he was working um, at – you know, uh, as an administrator that he was doing what he thought was best and he had regrets about it and that, um, he hoped that I understood. And it, it, it broke my heart because Mm -hmm. I knew, and he knew he didn't have much time left. He, he didn't have time to act on those regrets. And so, and even now I'm, I'm, I'm having to kind of choke it back myself because I'm just like, if I can talk to someone, whether it's recruit training, I'm doing a regular resilience training or, or a client that I'm seeing, and I can say, don't be at death's doorstep with tears in your eyes, apologizing to your family members for choices that you could have made differently. Live your life forward with an intentionality of trying to keep those those relationships and that balance and that identity and that value in yourself as as, as a parent, as a you know, community member, whatever it is, keep those in the forefront.
0: Yeah. Well, I can imagine though, if you share that story with the people that you work with the how impactful that is, because from your perspective as a daughter, because I'm assuming most Mm -hmm. of the people that you talk to have kids and are parents, Mm -hmm. um, that's going to kind of hit them in the feels. I think when, when people hear that, um, it's, and maybe, you know, it, it encourages them to make a change and I'm assuming it has. Yeah. Yeah. I've had
1: people give me that feedback. Um, I don't solicit as much feedback to say, Hey, you know, Check everybody that I've trained or this or that check in with mm-hmm. me or clients that I've seen check in with me, you know, years later, although I've had a few um, that have spontaneously done that. But it, that is my hope. I mean, that's kind of the point. Yeah. And I tell people that, you know, I get paid the same to do this resilience training, um, you know, or this other kind of support services. I get paid exactly the same whether you make a change or you don't. If you take care of yourself, you don't. The, the money is exactly the same for me. But I'd really prefer it if you did. I'd well, really, that's not really why you're doing know it.
0: Yeah. You're not in it. I mean, I'm not saying you don't want to, you don't deserve to get paid for what you do, but you're not in it for the money. You know, you're in it to really make a difference. And and that's why I tell
1: them that. And it's like, it's, it really like, you
0: have to understand. I want Mm -hmm. you to do it because why
1: else are we here talking about it? Mm -hmm. It might feel good. You might have some laughs and like learn some interesting information, but if nothing changes, nothing changes.
0: Right. So the, what you were referring to earlier when you, were in, when you interviewed these people in retirement, is that something that's an article, or is that available somewhere, or is that something you're still working on?
1: No, I wrote, I wrote um, one article uh, from Hero to Zero. I actually used the term okay. that, the, that the firefighter um, uh, gave me. Um, so I wrote the article. Um, from hero to zero. And I don't know if that's on my website or not, but obviously I have that as a PDF. Um, and then there's a certain degree of that that's in, in my book as well. Cause I mean, okay. a lot of the research that I did, I funneled into that. Um, and then I wrote an article, the evolving identity of a police officer. So, uh, and it's just a one pager that, that may or may not be on my website. I don't know. I wrote it when I was writing a mental health column for blue line magazine. And so it was just one of the topics um that I, I wrote on pretty early on because I knew it was pretty important. And I taught it at cops, like Concerns of Police Survivors, a couple of times too. So
0: Okay. Well, and I think I have a couple of those articles, and I'll definitely make sure to put them in the show notes so people can have the, the link directly. Yeah. So, Dr. Khan, one last thing um, you mentioned to me before we started recording was some things that you're currently working on uh, in your state, I believe. I don't know if this is nationwide regarding workers' compensation.
1: Yeah, here in Oregon, we had presumptive PTSD coverage for mm-hmm. um, first responders that began a couple of, not quite two years ago. And as a result, it's um, that, I'll say as a result, I don't know, maybe 2020 and 2021 is also contributing factors. I don't know if you've heard. There's been a few things happening.
0: I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> nationally, and then
1: uh, Portland, uh, Oregon is, is mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, just a shell of itself. Um so what we've we've noticed is we've noticed an increase in claims for, for work related post traumatic stress disorder. And so with that my work has has increased substantially. Uh, but then in again, as I mentioned, behind closed doors, I hear people, you know, and I see people move through, okay, I'm healing, I'm moving past it, I'm past the trauma, I'm past the organizational betrayal, okay, I'm past the, you know, the betrayal of my family members that, you know, or extended family members that, you know, thought this or that or whatever. Um, but then it's like, okay, now if we're talking about you going back to work, there isn't really any um, systematic um, way for people to be reintegrated to back to work for psychological leave as they are perhaps in other types of leave. And so what I have found is that a person is kind of, having to create their own situation if, the, if that's even allowed at all. But oftentimes they are just told, oh, okay, you're going to come back. If it was a shooting, um, then the, you know, you're going to go to the range and we're going to make sure, give you some time to, you know, to, uh, check, get your equipment checked back to you. And then, um, you're going to have a couple of days to, to catch up on emails and then you're back on the road, um, you know, and maybe you'll have somebody with you or maybe you won't. And uh, a lot of them are just kind of being thrown back in full on. And then if they're put in some kind of clerical duty, then uh, one of my clients said they have to come to Jesus real quick because they're just like, oh, my God, he has healed me. I no longer want to do these administrative you know, cop copying tasks. Look how look how much healing has happened because it is so torturous to just do those clerical duties as part of their reintegration that they just jump right back in, full both feet. And um, you know, and this client telling me that is is one of the ones that I've actually worked with on us creating a a graded return to work. Here's how you know, you will be exposed to, you know, uh, operational thing or to the, to the station and then to operational things and then here's peer supports role in supporting you through that and here's how we check in to make sure you're not having any reaction to things um, but others they're they they're like well if so do I have to ask for that or do I just automatically get that? Because if I have to ask for that, I'm not asking for it because I don't want mm-hmm. it to reflect on me. Versus if an agency had said, hey, look, we need to create a protocol for people to return to work. And everybody's kind of has some version of this that doesn't feel like you asking for it is a reflection of you. then Right. right then I think we're doing ourselves a better service that we don't have someone um, – have the potential for re-entry before they've even fully gotten back.
0: So is that something you created just for this person, like a back-to-work reintegration plan, or is this something that you're working on and putting together as a document to give to agencies?
1: Well, for this, per- for this person, because I don't work inside his agency as much as I do in some of the others, I had to rely on him and said, what are the options? What do you mm-hmm. feel like would... So it was a collaborative. it was a conversation between he and I okay. and him identifying things and me saying, "Well, what would get you here?" And then he would identify what it was. So it was that back and forth where we created what that was. Now, what does it need to be for um, another agency? That's where again, some of my research has come in where I've looked at some of what some of the other agencies are doing, and I have return to work protocols and things like that where they have um, peer support embedded. And one of the ones, so it's it's a work in progress to answer it more succinctly. Um, But Edmonton police up in Canada, and I'm not citing it because I lived in Canada for a while, but rather I was actually directed. They said, oh, you need to actually look at what Edmonton police is doing because they, and they talk about it on this podcast, Ben, don't break where the two people, the two architects of this um, return to work program are being interviewed in this podcast where they talk about, here's what we found, here's what we do, here's how we do it. And then if you go you know, in Google it, Edmonton Police Return to Work Program. There's a slideshow that says, "Here's the rationale why an agency would want to do that." You know, in terms of cost and reducing turnover and additional sick time because you've you've put forth the care in that kind of last little piece of their work, which is getting them back. You put that you put a little bit of care into that part of the process. Um, so it's 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 in development. Um, again, born out of me seeing that there's mm-hmm. a need for this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and I'm going to be on the lookout for whatever you might put out on that. But in the meantime, I will, I will check that out, that podcast. Yeah. And I promised that I thought that was going to be the last thing I wanted to ask you, but I, I have one more thing and then we'll wrap it up because I want to respect your time. And this is only really, um, because this is something current that we're, um, addressing at our agency. Um, and I'm not asking you this because of political reasons, but you know, the, the situation in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. um, it seems to have maybe impacted some people that are veterans on our mm-hmm. agency. And I just was curious if this is something that you dealt with or have any suggestions as far as, how. Uh, how an agency can handle, um, just reaching out to people like that, or, you know, whether we send an email or, or just any advice that you might have about that.
1: Yeah. And I don't know how much advice I actually have on it because it's so new that I've, I've slowly started just, I've brought it up with a few clients that I knew mm-hmm. had been to Afghanistan and, um, to see, you know, how they were doing with it and, and how they were recovering from it. So it's probably a, too early for me to say anything systematic about what what to do with that other than to, you know, if there's a resource in your community that uh, works with VA or supports VA, um, you know, military members or former military members, that they uh, be encouraged to reach out to those um, contacts or those support services. Um, One of the things I did actually, and it's not related to the withdrawal from Afghanistan, but it is the systematic destruction of property in here in Portland. And so a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. is boarded up a lot of big fences being put around buildings. And it reminded a lot of, uh, veteran police officers that are veterans of their deployments. And so that, that was something to be considered that they may have people having, um, unexpected responses to seeing that kind of, Mm -hmm. that kind of, um, environmental changes that could, take them back to deployment traumas and memories.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for that. I appreciate it because yeah, it's just, you know, not obviously being a military veteran myself, not really knowing, you know, what that's like, um, but wanting to, to make sure that we support people if they need it. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And, and the one that I checked in
0: on about that
1: yesterday, yesterday
0: or day before,
1: his, Um, he's so well resourced. He had already checked in with his people, his pod of Mm -hmm. people that had that shared experience to support each other on it. So that was a good thing is that he felt that that community was already there. And it's It's an insular community. So that's why I say sometimes it's not trying to be a replacement for those kinds of supports that are already there, but reminding people or that those supports are there um, uh, because, you know, that's, that's where the most, I guess, in that respect, culturally competent support would be.
0: Yeah. Yes. Well, I really appreciate your time. It's been so great for me to talk to you. Um, again, like I said, I've I've been kind of watching you for a while and that really sounds creepy, but I don't mean (laughs) it like that. (laughs) I have a lot of respect.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What what were you going to say? Yeah. I was going to say, as long as you're not the guy that was sending me pictures of his foot in women's socks. Um, yeah. And yeah, that's not me in in the middle of the night. And I was like, Oh yeah, no, that's not how that works.
0: (laughs) That's kind of funny because that actually reminds me of a case where, um, I worked years ago when I was in sex crimes with foot fetish. So I, Mm -hmm. I, it, it is real, uh, but no, in all seriousness, (laughs) I really respect everything that you're doing and, um, thank you so much for what you do and it's been a pleasure. So if anyone wants to find you, could you just really briefly tell us about your website where we can find your book and, and all the things, not for people to stalk you, but just for them to, to find you.
1: (laughs) Yes, Yes. Um, well it's easy. It's, it's my website is first responderpsychology.com. So first is spelled out responderpsychology.com. Uh, my book is actually on the landing page of that. You can get it from me and then I just uh, ship it with or without a message from, from um, the link there. It's also found on Amazon. If you want to get one quicker and pay more and all that kind of business, you can get it at
0: Amazon as well. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Khan. Of course. All right. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you find value in the episode, please share it, give us a review. And if you'd like to be notified of future episodes, you can subscribe on our Podbean website or give us an email at wendy at bluelineyoga.com. I'd love to hear from you with questions, suggestions for future guests or topics that you'd like to hear about. I have a few quick announcements before we sign off. I'm going to be offering a free talk at the end of the month called Wired and Tired. It's going to be live on Zoom. After a brief discussion, I'll lead a yoga nidra practice, which is a guided relaxation practice known to help reduce anxiety, improve sleep, alleviate muscle tension and pain, and settle the nervous system. If you're unable to attend live, you can still send us an email and we can send you the recording after the fact. Also, if you're interested in building resilience and adaptability into your physiology by optimizing the rhythm of your daily habits, you want to tap into your unique purpose and potential and learn these habits in a dynamic group setting, then you may be interested in my Radical Resilience Program. We talk a lot about healing and trauma and overcoming adversity on this show, and this is not one-dimensional. Learning and integrating holistic habits that include nutrition, rest, mindset, easeful living, and so much more. Radical Resilience empowers you with the knowledge and practical tools to thrive and heal. Email wendy at bluelineyoga.com. We would love to hear from you.